Welcome to Exploring Hydrogen. Here we will learn about all the exciting advancements, opportunities and challenges of this nascent energy sector. We delve into how hydrogen can contribute to the decarbonisation of Australia and the world and investigate what it's going to take for adoption and into transportation, industry and society. I'm Andy Marsland. Welcome to our energising journey. Thrilled to welcome two guests today, two of the leadership team from Synergy Met. Uh, we have Chris Dunks, who's the managing director and one of the founders, and Vikram Anenden, who's the general manager of hydrogen development. Chris has spent 26 years working on major minerals processing, refining, power, industrial technology, and software developments in both Australia and the USA. And Vikram has 17 years in the oil and gas sector across Australia, New Zealand, and Europe. So a very warm welcome, guys. Thanks, Andy. Great to be here. Thank you, Andy. Pleasure to be here. Uh, we've got a, an exciting conversation ahead of us today, primarily focused around turquoise hydrogen. Uh, Chris and his team at Synergen believe they've unlocked a solution that their methane pyrolysis technology can produce hydrogen as green as hydrogen produced from solar and wind. So I'm excited to learn more. Perhaps we can uh, dive straight into it then, Chris. Uh, good. Can you give me an overview of, of Synergen Met as a company? Sure. Yeah, yeah. So Synergen was formed in uh, December 2007. Uh, so it's, a, it's been quite a journey since that time, 14 years. It was formed on the basis of using a modular thermal plasma technology to make chemicals for the mining industry. We initially looked at making cyanide for the gold industry with a modular plant using this really interesting tech, which is thermal plasma. And so we, we went through a process over the next really 10 years of, of commercializing that, that concept, ran that on a mine site and, and really debugged a lot of that type of tech. And then part of that debugging was, was actually managing carbon. How do you manage carbon? This is what I guess we'll probably talk about today, is how do you manage carbon in this process? Because when you do methane pyrolysis, you're splitting your methane to form hydrogen gas and carbon black. And in the process of, of uh, working through this chemical production of cyanide, we, we decided that we, we needed to be a bit safer in what we were doing in, in our um, fixing of some problems. We started making acetylene and hydrogen instead of making cyanide. Uh, and acetylene and hydrogen is, is made by splitting methane but with, without the presence of nitrogen. And in doing that, we spent a whole year figuring out how to manage the carbon problem. And if you talk to anybody in this methane pyrolysis space really the big issue for commercialization of this tech is about carbon management. Hydrogen is manufactured uh, very easily, uh, easily in inverted commas. It's not that easy, but it's, it's, it, it comes apart very quickly. But what do you do with the carbon? So we spent a year doing that. And that was really the, the kernel of the idea of making hydrogen in this, in this way uh, at a commercial scale. Yeah, fantastic. I think you touched upon it there. But uh, yeah, if, if you can yeah, sort of break down for the for the listeners, maybe across to, to you, Vikram. What is uh, what is turquoise hydrogen then? Andy, it's my pleasure to be here and share my thoughts. So the term turquoise was marketed by our German friends. The technology is between blue hydrogen and grey hydrogen. We call it methane pyrolysis, and it is the method by which hydrogen is produced. Methane pyrolysis itself uses natural gas as feedstock and then removes the carbon from the hydrocarbon and leaves hydrogen behind. The carbon dioxide is sequestered into solid carbon. This allows natural gas to be used without direct CO2 emissions, then controlled by a stabilized process. 
the hydrogen burns clean. Our process allows pre-combustion carbon capture and opens doors to high-end graphene market. So the black box basics are the process converts four tons of natural gas into one ton of hydrogen and three tons of carbon. That's the ratio of the molecular structure of methane. So um, here are the three takeaways that we should take from turquoise hydrogen production. Thermodynamically speaking, methane pyrolysis uses a seventh of the energy than green hydrogen, and with the current technology makes this disruptive. We can develop new applications of carbon black here in Australia, and by doing this, we decarbonize with each application. Energy systems are complex, and methane pyrolysis can be a part of this decarbonizing solution. Yeah, fantastic. So are there any other byproducts then? So you're splitting natural gas to hydrogen and carbon, solid carbon. Are there any other, other byproducts that come out of the process? Uh, no, I mean, we, we recycle any additional, I mean, there might be a microscopic or, or points of a percent of other hydrocarbons that may, may not have actually gone through the process of, of splitting into the hydrogen carbons have reformed, but we'll recycle that back into the system so we're not losing any any of that um, value. So, no, we're, well, this is, and this is where we actually have an interesting debate internally and discussion about, you know, what is green, what is turquoise? And, and if we're using renewable energy to, to fire our plasma system and our entire uh, operation, then we're, we're not generating any CO2. There's no, there's no oxygen in our system. And that's obviously by design. We don't want oxygen with hydrogen present. So there's no oxygen in the system. So we're not generating any CO2 emissions. And we're not generating any, any other greenhouse gases. And we're dealing with the methane as it comes through. So do we actually reference this as green or do we continue to, to call it turquoise, which is this uh, topic or this um, moniker that's been labelled for this particular application. But I guess we look at this from a, do we, do we have any greenhouse gas emissions? No, we don't. Do we generate any CO2? No, we don't. So, you know, where does that sit from a green perspective? We're, we're pretty solid on the, on the view that it's a, it's a, it's a, it is a green hydrogen if we're using renewable energy. Yeah, sounds huge. So much opportunity. So if we stack up, your technology against the what people traditionally call green hydrogen, of uh, which is hydrogen produced from solar or, or wind. What are the advantages of the synergy met process over there? It's actually a number of them. Firstly, there's existing infrastructure in place for the delivery of, of methane or natural gas to, to businesses, to communities, to that we can actually tap straight into. For example, if you had a food manufacturer that was using natural gas to fire a boiler in their process of manufacturing whatever they're making, uh, and they decided they didn't want to use methane anymore, and they wanted to use hydrogen, we can locate ourselves on site in that plant, tap into that methane supply and provide them with hydrogen to fire that boiler. They'd probably have to make some modifications to their firing system, but we can tap into existing infrastructure. So we don't need to change any infrastructure. We can co-locate with the end user, but we can also have a standalone system that can produce hydrogen and it can be transported to wherever it's required. So that's that's the first one. Secondly, we're very efficient. As Vikram said, in comparison with a with an electrolyzer process, we are much, much more efficient in producing the same amount of hydrogen. And then our, you know, our costs are very competitive. Our costs are currently competitive with a transported grey hydrogen. We're as competitive right now. So if we're 
For example, if we're co-locating at a site and producing hydrogen on that site, we would be cost competitive with grey hydrogen being made off-site and being transported to that location. So we can't really talk a lot about pricing because it's a forward-looking statement. We're right in the middle of an IPO process, but just as a general rule, you know, we, are, we actually have very competitive pricing with, with what we've um, developed to date. Good stuff. So what does the unit look like then? Is it sort of a skid-mounted uh, unit or can you describe for the listeners uh, what it looks like and uh, the size? I guess it's probably roughly three containers, 40-foot containers, like the large containers that you see. It's around about three of those. The front end of, of the process deals with the gas supply that's coming in. If it's going to be coming straight off a pipeline, then it's going to be clean and we don't have to do anything to it. might just have to compress it to push it into the, our system. If it's coming from a, a coal seam gas well, which is where our first project was with a group called Talau Energy, the Brisbane-based ASX and, and uh, AIM-listed oil and gas producer, projects in Botswana. So that's that's coal seam gas that's coming directly out of the well that they're flaring at the moment and we'll be uh, processing that flared gas. So that has some um, CO2 and some nitrogen in it. So we will condition that gas before it comes into our system. So we'll have gas conditioning and compression. Then it comes into our, our process, which is quite small and compact. And then once we've converted that methane to hydrogen and carbon black, we have carbon removal, which is filtration. And then we have, if, if the hydrogen is required to be purified, say to a 5.9s, if it's going into, a, into vehicles for, electros, uh, for cells, we would be able to purify that. Depends on the output. So, for example, with, uh, with Talau, it's going to be going into power station, blending in with, with natural gas for power generation. We won't need to purify it. It'll, it'll just go straight in or it'll be compressed, stored and then blended. So there's a number of different ways that we can modify the back end. And that really depends on the size of this that you see, the physical size. How much hydrogen is produced through each of the units? Depends on how much power you put. So, so plasma, this modular plasma process is is essentially a tube. Tube is between three hundred mil and a meter long, and inside that tube you run your gas, which was we actually start the process with hydrogen, and then we run an electric arc between an anode and cathode, and that arc creates this plasma environment. And so if we put 100 kilowatts through that system, we'll get around 130 kilos a day of hydrogen and about 400 kilos of carbon. So there's three times carbon of the amount of carbon by mass that, than there is for hydrogen. And if we put a megawatt through one of these units, we'll, we'll get about 1,350 kilos a day of hydrogen at maximum output. And that, that can be run down or up to a megawatt. These systems are quite flexible depending on the requirements. So we're, we're talking to a customer at the moment Requirement is 1,000 kilos a day into a new metallurgy process. And so we would install a 1,000 megawatt system. So we have the ability to go up to 1,300 kilos a day, but we would just run it at 1,000, that kind of scenario. So it's quite flexible. Yes, yeah. And breaking that down even further, I guess, for, for people like, like me, so there's the, um, the, the state. So you've got solid, liquid, gas, and then uh, plasma being the, the fourth yes. state. So That's right. yeah, what, what is plasma? It, it's essentially an ionization of an atmosphere. So... You have electrons, free electrons running around in this atmosphere and you create that by running a current through a gas, essentially. Mm. What we have is an environment where you have very high temperature and then you have uh, free radicals and you have the, the, the ability to split the CH4 into carbon and hydrogen and that they exist as a gas. In other applications, you can do various different things with those elements as they're, as they're reforming and forming. But here we, we want to prioritise hydrogen as, as much as a concentration as we can and then carbon 
as high concentration as we can. That's what we're getting because we've got nothing else in that atmosphere. So you get, end up with hydrogen gas and carbon gas. Carbon gas is an interesting concept. No one really thinks about carbon as a gas necessarily on its own. But then you create the right environment and that, that carbon drops out from a gas phase, transforms back into that solid phase, and then you collect that and that becomes carbon black. Well, it's a graphitized form of carbon black. And what are some of the uses of carbon black then? Actually, it's interesting. Carbon black's kind of in our world, isn't it? It's, it's used in tyres as a binder, as a filler. In tyres, it's used black ink. has carbon black inside the, in, in ink. It's in textiles. It's, it's, it's actually in a lot of different applications around the world. It's a, a large global market. It's a commoditized global market. There's about 10 different specs of carbon black that are, that are marketed and produced. It's generally uh, produced in a fairly dirty environment, but here we're... We are decarbonising, I guess, that process of making carbon black. But we also see the carbon opportunity as more than just carbon black. We see it as an opportunity to make something with, with more value. Mm-hmm. So we're currently going through the initial phases of, of development of a number of different applications using that carbon material. Are you able to talk about your revenue streams from the carbon side versus from the sale of hydrogen? The, the carbon side revenue is, I mean, carbon black pricing... On average, over the last 10 years, it's probably sat around $500 a tonne. Current pricing in the US and Europe, from what we can gather, is about $1,300 a tonne. All of our modelling is based on the $500 a tonne to make the financial models work for us. And that, that just builds over time. I guess it's one of the reasons why we're looking at extra value that we can generate from the carbon to increase that that bulk price so that we can have more value in that part of the process. At the moment, it's uh, it assists in bringing down that average cost of hydrogen to the end user, but we, we see a, a time in the future, two, three, four, five years, uh, we, we're really taking this in a methodical way, we're not kind of rushing it, but once we work through some of the different applications, we see a time when that hydrogen price is going to be very, very low. Yeah, fantastic. I wanted to loop back around to the comparison of your technology versus hydrogen from solar or wind. Have you done any modelling as yet on the full life cycle emissions? And I'm just thinking the existing infrastructure that you mentioned with uh, with Synergen's process that uh, you kind of drop in place and it aligns to the existing infrastructure versus what could potentially be stranded assets um, to bringing online huge fields of solar or wind turbines. I guess we're working through that modelling at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. So what we what we're noticing is that uh, there's been a fair bit of effort in the market in terms of, you know, understanding what the capex and opex costs are associated with this emerging industry, and um, from from all accounts, we are seeing that our competitors right now would be obviously you know electrolyzers and electrolyzers probably have the competitive advantage that they've been around for a while and we're noticing the cost curves dropping significantly and this happens just in the general economics of supply and demand so our our modeling would very much be based on you know borrowing the the concept of a levelized cost of electricity we'll use a similar concept for the levelized cost of hydrogen as well and essentially that's mapped along the lines of what the equipment cost what the operative environment is and of course the supply and demand and that's where chris kind of touched on the value of the carbon market the carbon black market because the the value of the carbon black market is what will you know drive um, these costs down and in order for you know we talk about turquoise you know technologies to be readily competitive we need to see at least a 50 percent 
a reduction in comparative to electrolyzers or what the cost by electrolysis. And that is very much determined by the cost, in my view, of uh, CH4, so for methane and for carbon black. And what's holding you back as a company in terms of your further growth? Like what are the biggest challenges that you're, you're working through at the moment? Is it is it from a, uh, a policy side of things? Is it supply chain? Is it, I guess, a, a marketing about, you know, it sounds like such an exciting technology. Is it getting that that technology known by the broader market? Um, Great question, Andy. Mm. I, I think we've been holding ourselves back for the last probably 12 months as we just work through the final elements of the tech. We've got a team in, uh, we've, we have a, t- a company called Phoenix Solutions Co. that is a plasma system supplier. We have gone through a process of acquiring them, which will close at IPO for us. They're based in Minneapolis. They're one of the, the leading plasma supply companies in the world. And they've been running uh, the last six, eight weeks, just final test program for, with us, just making sure that we've got everything right. What we're trying to do here is not rush into the marketplace with with a technology that we are kind of happy with. We need to stand by it and we need to be standing with our joint venture partners and running it and making sure that we're we're happy before we actually tick the box on these projects that, that it's proceeding forward. So we've been holding ourselves back, but we're now at a point where we're IPOing. We're raising the right capital that we need to build the first couple of projects. We've got some really great partners to proceed with. We're taking it steady in actually picking the right companies to work with, uh, the right size projects to work with. But we see once these first couple of projects, well, this is really the life cycle of commercialization of industrial tech, right? It's, it's, you go through a process of determining and, and working through the initial phases of the application, which is what we've done over the last 10 years with the plasma systems. And then you go through a process of really refining that last 5%. And we're really at that completion point right now. And then you go through first commercial plant, second and third, fourth, away you go. And the projects that we'll be rolling out from the end of 2022 into 2023 really be the same type of design. And they'll just the front end will be, de- will be different depending on the, 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 the uh, quality of the gas that we'll be bringing in. But we're, we've been holding ourselves back, but we're now IPOing, we're raising funds, and, and we're going to be moving forward very rapidly you know, into the middle of this year once we've got our funds in the door and away we go. Yeah, fantastic. So you're pretty much at full commercialization now. I know you've had the, the pilot facility going for for some time now. And you mentioned the end of 2022. Is that for first operations then of that first plant? That's that's the intent at this point in time. Depending on global shipping and supply chains and, and how we're all going to be affected by that, because there's still, obviously, that's still an issue. That's our target with the team from Talau, is to be running in Botswana by the end of this year. Definitely, uh, and earlier if we can. Where do you see the main demand for jobs or skills? And do you think there's going to be a gap in order to train people up in the hydrogen sector? Maybe I can throw this across to you, Vikram. In all honesty, I think you would also find a transferability of skills, you know, even among, you know, in the industry itself. So, you know, the technology behind hydrogen is, um, you know, nothing... Um, too dissimilar from you know the processes involved in oil and gas, and I think you're also in, in a position where you're finding a lot of a lot of skilled people realizing and understanding the urgency behind uh, CO2 emissions, and also transferring their skill set into the industry. So, from my view, from you know what I'm, I'm even communicating with peers, there is this inherent desire to upskill 
and to contribute at large to the industry that we do belong in. And, you know, when we keep in mind the, the oil and gas industry has been a huge contributor to CO2. And um, in, in many ways, just as much as technology has been a key part to the finance industry, I believe hydrogen will be that valuable input in towards um, energy as we see it going forward, and especially in the, in the balance in the balance of the demand of energy and how that's available too. So, you know, turquoise hydrogen will be part of this solution. And, um, you know, I just look forward to developing a sustainable strategy going forward that does place a priority in reducing the amount of consumed energy per tonne of safe CO2. I think that's the way the future is going. Yeah, great. If you look more broadly across the energy transition, what else would you like to happen for Australia's hydrogen and decarbonisation ambitions to be realised? And I'm thinking, you know, maybe policy changes or regulation or funding or tax incentives. Uh, is there anything else that would help organisations like Synergy Mets to accelerate? From my perspective, I guess we operate fairly independently and we, we've previously tapped into state government grant funding. We haven't recently, you know, the last few years because it takes a lot of time and we've been very uh, people-strapped. I think there's there's big opportunities here for government funding. I think we just need to, for, for ourselves, I'll talk about ourselves and I'll talk about broader and broader terms, but for ourselves, government funding or grants is something that we need to progress with addressing. From a broader perspective, the renewable energy availability is actually an interesting topic when we've been working through, you know, how do we generate green hydrogen on a 24-7 basis? And, and I think that this is a, a conversation which must be having in, being had in boardrooms across the country with hydrogen proponents, is how are they going to be generating 24-7 renewable energy-based hydrogen? Given the the, the the renewable energy infrastructure that exists in Australia, the, the renewable energy options that are around, the the actual option when the wind's not blowing and when it's night time, so your solar and wind strategy isn't necessarily working, where is it going to be coming from? And I think that's a that's actually a broader discussion that isn't necessarily being had. I'm seeing some discussion in newspapers, but it's I'm interested to know what you know how we're going to be proceeding into the future on a renewable energy basis for 24/7 on a 24/7 basis to be able to make all of this green hydrogen that everyone's talking about. I think that's a fundamental a fundamental issue that's not really being addressed. I think there's another issue which which needs to be addressed is where is the water coming from for the for all these electrolyzers? You know, where is that that spec water that they require coming from? Is it desal? Is it coming from desal? Where is the energy coming to, to drive that those desal options, potential options? There's a lot of detail I think that's also missing in the in this in these conversations that, that probably needs to be brought to um to the front so that we can understand that full life cycle. Yeah, I wouldn't mind just uh, recapping some of those points that you mentioned because um, I think it's quite important for the listeners to sort of capture that and perhaps we can discuss them further. So, yeah, we've spoken about the use of the existing infrastructure. We've spoken about the electricity use is significantly more efficient than electrolysis. The 24-7 operation that you mentioned, there's no, no water required. Is there anything else that in addition to those? Carbon black second revenue stream. Oh, of course, yeah. you know, from an economic perspective, it makes a massive difference, and and that's a, a really important driver of our models, of our economic models. 
Any thoughts from you? From yeah, and I think the, the, the importance behind it is also trying to fine-tune and understand the quality of our carbon black. And that itself, from my modelling, would place a huge impact on the end product of trying to reduce the, the value and the cost of, of hydrogen. Okay, great. What do you think can be achieved by Synergen in the next, say, five years then? How many units do you think are going to be aligned to your industrial partners? And is that just in Australia or are you, are you thinking worldwide? Um, do you have a piece of string on you? So, <laughs> I think our philosophy for for rolling this out isn't necessarily tied to we must roll out four to eight units a year. I think it's it's about finding the right partners and finding those right opportunities. I see us in 2020, so 2022 pilot plant out and we, we actually have another couple of projects that we're in the front end of reviewing and, and assessing. 2023, we kicked, so that's a 100 kilowatt, 135 kilos a day hydrogen for this first project with Talao. And then the next ones will actually scale to, to a megawatt unit, so 1,300 kilos a day of production. And that'll be in 2023. They'll be operational up potentially in a number of those. But I guess without looking, talking about forward-looking statements, which I'm not really allowed to do at this point in time without given our IPO, we just see ourselves having a really steady, solid business. Joint venturing by 2020. 6 2027 we'll be operating here we have a an investment partner in the united states called yorktown energy they're a private equity fund based out of new york we've started talking with a number of their investments about investing companies about opportunities in the united states there's some great opportunities there we just we see the opportunity here is for us it's it's a bit different from the way that you might view the world if you're building massive solar farm electrolyzer farm like is being promoted for, for Queensland and various places in Australia. We see our opportunities as being discrete, partnering with companies that require this on their site to be able to address a problem that they have, which might be you know, fugitive methane emissions. It might be conversion of their energy source or their energy use from methane to hydrogen. And so we see this as being a, a, quite a different market for us than shipping thousands of tonnes of hydrogen to Japan, that's not really the space that we play in. We play in a, a, an environment where we have a, a customer that has an issue and, and, and wants to solve a problem, we, we have the solution to solve that problem. So we see, we see that philosophy being able to extend you know, across multiple different countries and different applications, and, and we think we're in a really good place to make that happen. Yeah, that's great. And appreciate it's not the main focus of the conversation but perhaps we can talk just for a few minutes because that your technology also has uh, other exciting uses as well maybe sure. we can talk about the PFAS side of the business yeah sure um, I'm not sure if your listeners are familiar with it but uh, PFAS is a uh, it's currently a toxic chemical that's being identified over the last probably 10 15 years as having really issues with human health and, and plant health and and uh, issues in our ecosystem it's essentially a they call it a forever chemical, and it was a, it's a modern chemical that was made in the 1950s, and it's in it's in firefighting foam, it's in shampoo, it's in Teflon, it's in many 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 modern products that we have in our lives, and without something like PFAS or this, it's actually a hydrocarbon with a fluorine atom bonded to the carbon atom, and the issues that it causes all these issues, but but the big challenge around PFAS is that it's very hard to destroy it. 
because that fluorine carbon bond is very, very strong. So it exists in our groundwater. It exists in our wastewater treatment facilities. It exists in waste dumps, in leachate. It's kind of everywhere where, where there's been hydrocarbons in the past uh, used for fuel, uh, whether people have mostly the concentrations of PFAS around where there's been firefighting training over the last 50, 60 years and waste dumps that have been operated since the 1960s. So what we've done uh, as a team, we identified quite early uh, back in 2018 that, that we had the potential application to be able to destroy PFAS. And again, it comes back to that 10 years of work we did on the chemical production with plasma where we figured out how to drip feed liquids into this plasma environment. So we've spent the last three, four years with uh, a, a team from the University of Queensland and another a, a company called SSI building this application where we, fo- where we concentrate out PFAS and we destroy it in plasma. And it works. And we've got, we've got our first site up and running here in Brisbane. It's successful. Uh, we're really excited by it. The, the, uh, the opportunities for PFAS immediately right now in 2022 are huge and we're rolling this out. So it's fantastic. Yeah, huge. And is it the same business model that the uh, the containers you're treating and destroying at the client site? No, what we'll do, what we're doing is we're treating at the site and we're creating a concentrate. So, so we're treating ten thousand liters a day. Then we'll we'll take that to a concentrate. We, we concentrate that by about two hundred times, and then we take that offsite and we have our own offsite destruction facility, one here that we're actually setting up right now in Brisbane, and we're actually developing a site in South Carolina in the United States to do the same thing. So we'll destroy that off-site. Most of these customers don't want to have that destruction on their site, mm-hmm. and we're happy to take that off-site and manage it ourselves. Yeah. So, so it's, it's really exciting. We're really very excited to be able to be part of this space and actually to do something meaningful. The destruction of PFAS is a, a problem that's been around for a long time. We've solved it, and that's really you know, incredibly exciting for us. Yeah, fantastic. And is that uh, side of the business fully commercial? Have you got EPA approvals? We're actually doing the applications right now. We're going through that EPA approval right now for the destruction side. Great stuff. Back to hydrogen then. <laughs> uh, <yeah. laughs> so looking more broadly, what, what does success look like and what would you what are your hopes and dreams for the sector? Maybe across to you, Vikram. Yeah. Certainly for me, it would be seeing, I think I mentioned it before, there's, a, there's an energy mix in the play. And, and right now, the, the fight is towards proving a commercial model going forward. Um, I don't necessarily see turquoise hydrogen as being a minor or a major abatement in technology, but it's certainly going to provide a cost-competitive advantage in reducing the overall price of, let's say, elect- um, electricity for that matter. So for me, going forward, it'll be definitely good to see turquoise having a competitive advantage, especially in the form of the technology itself. And time will tell, you know, we are working on on models and also looking at the supply chain environment because, you know, the supply chain is eventually what's going to reduce the overall cost associated with this technology. And just as we've seen electrolyzers in the past five years, I mean, I've been looking at some of these cost curves and they've dropped consuming we're looking at 27 to 32% you know over 5 years so it's it's interesting to see the demand side of it and now it's about trying to place turquoise on a center stage and and put some some cost competitive advantage towards it and we're seeing that in terms of you know energy policies being rolled out certainly in the environments and forums that I'm associated with you know there there's certainly a good interest both from academia, from, you know, government entities and from the, you know, from the likes of us who are in the privatised industry. So now it's about, you know, putting putting a full circle um, emphasis on on this technology and, and trying to operate on a commercial readiness level. Yeah, great. I, I think that you can't expect suddenly the whole world is hydrogen fueled 
I guess backing up what Vikram's talking about here, there's actually there's interest and the, the, the interest has to then convert to decisions and that convert to investment and convert to a change in philosophy around the way that, that, that business and government operates. And the growth of the sector is going to be driven by those decisions. But we have to be understanding of the the actual the, the requirements for those decisions to be made as well. So we have to support that and we have to be, be fully behind the way that those decisions are made to, to turn to use hydrogen instead of you know, methane or to, to provide that support for this hydrogen industry, industry to grow. So I think success is, is really about everyone kind of shepherding that process in many respects and supporting it. Mm-hmm. And, and there's, there's many different ways for this industry to be successful. And what we're doing is one of them. And, and I think um, to be part of that is really important for us. But as a general rule, we can't, you know, click our fingers and expect everything to be done now. And we have to actually work through this process over the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years. It's, it's just a, this is a long burn rather than a very, really short solution. Yes, yeah. And I'm sure for, for all, all of us, though, uh, obviously from a business perspective, from, from Synergen, but also, I guess, globally, Paris 2050 ag- agreement, make sure, making sure that we're, we're achieving that. Even just looking, we're here in, uh, in Brisbane in the last week, we've had uh, pretty devastating floods and the increasing wild weather that we, we're seeing uh, because of the um, CO2 emissions in, in the atmosphere. I think for, for all of us, the quicker we can get technologies like this online, the better. I agree. Yeah. Just uh, in closing, any any asks of the audience or um, uh, any information that we haven't spoken about that you'd like to, to share with the audience? Keep an open mind, I think, on, on how this sector develops. I think uh, there's a number of different ways of addressing the same problem and, and we've got a, a, an approach here which is kind of unique. There are others that are playing in this space, which you know we, we hope are successful as well. But we think that this the approach that we have is is a, is a good one and it's a right one and it's uh, something that we, we're rolling out right now. But, yeah, there's probably nothing else to add. What about you, Vikram? Yes, all great points, Chris. Uh, there are several applications hydrogen can be used to decarbonize and we need to pay close attention to the value proposition here and the dispatchable operating medium of these technologies. I like to think of ourselves as the bridge between existing natural gas infrastructure and the decarbonized future. I do believe in the gradual transition of our resources, and really, that's what's unique about Synergen's technology, is that it fits into an existing infrastructure, modularized and both scalable. So if our hydrogen production technology has piqued your interest, I do encourage you, the listeners, to reach out to us through in this energy transition through various energy forums. We are across them. As a community, we are in a position to collectively share ideas, make a difference, and create a renewable energy mix. So with these common thoughts and a common vision of reducing the amount of CO2 emissions, I really do believe that we can make a huge impact here in Australia. Fantastic. I think that's a really good uh, place to close. So we'll put a link on to Synergen's website. Um, We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, please uh, like, subscribe and uh, give us a five-star rating. I'm Andy Marsland. Hope you enjoyed the show. Thanks for joining us on the hydrogen journey. We welcome you to join us at our next episode. Please remember to subscribe and review the show and hope to see you next time. 